This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business, where we talk with the people building the future of news. I'm Josh Benton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. This is Episode 7. My guest this week is Michael Manis. Michael is VP of the Knight Foundation's Journalism and Media Innovation Programs. That means he oversees how Knight gives away somewhere between 30 to $40 million a year for journalism or news-related projects. In the journalism innovation space, Knight is the big dog. Other national foundations like Ford and MacArthur and Carnegie, they invest in media projects in a targeted way, but Knight really sees it as its core business. And as a result, night watching has become the criminology of the future of news world. Everybody wants to know what they're seeing and what they're interested in supporting. Now, here's the part of my intro when a big siren goes off and I give you a little disclaimer. Night funds lots of people in journalism, and we are one of them. Knight has been a financial supporter of Neiman Lab in the past. They gave us some money three years ago to expand our reporting staff. And in the spirit of full disclosure, you should know that up front. Back to Michael. Before coming to Knight in 2011, he spent a long time at Gannett. He was its VP of Innovation and Design, and before that, VP of Strategic Planning for its newspaper division. In the brief time since Michael's arrival at Knight, there have been some pretty significant changes in what it funds, a bigger emphasis on code and an emphasis on speed, moving faster. An example of that might be the Night News Challenge, probably the best-known funding initiative they've had in recent years. It went from taking the better part of a year, from applications to cash in hand, to just a couple months. And the new Knight Prototype Fund is specifically targeted at small projects that can be built quickly and cheaply. Michael and I talked about Knight's priorities, how they've shifted, and specifically about the new round of the Night News Challenge, which is open right this minute and focused on open government. Here's our conversation. So how did you get to Knight Foundation anyway? What uh, You were at Gannett before that, I know, but, but you know, without reciting your entire LinkedIn profile, can you uh, summarize how you, uh, how you got to where you are now? Yeah, so um, I, I was with Gannett for 15 years, um, always on the online journalism side of things. Um, in my last uh, few years at Gannett, about four, I was the uh, vice president of design innovation there. Um, but in that time period, and the, the kind of the last chunk of my career at Gannett, I was on the journalism advisory council for Knight. And uh, when Alberto was looking to shift uh, the kind of role and add media innovation and highlight media innovation is a, a really big part of what we we're doing. Um, I started having discussions with him about um, about uh, coming over tonight and, and engaging in this role. Mm-hmm. Did you start at in Gannett, at Gannett in at a newspaper, or did you start I did, with corporate? Yeah, I, was at, I was the online manager at the Springfield News Leader in Springfield, Missouri. Ah, I'm glad you specified uh, the state, not just any Springfield. The yeah, Simpson yeah, Springfield. Right. There's many. So, um, so yeah, I was there, and I was the uh, I was originally in the marketing department, actually. That's where the online uh, services started. And when we launched, um, it was so far back in the day of of um, online sites that they wouldn't allow us to post news on the website. Um, so it was primarily a classified sites. And, you know, and as most things in that time period, it was a defensive mechanism around uh, the threat of the Internet to uh, the newspaper industry. Uh-huh. Ah uh, yes, defending against the internet always a good strategy. Yeah, exactly. uh, uh, well, from from the world that that we're in, that most of the people listening to this are in, uh, we we see Knight as a as a journalism foundation. But I know that's only a part of the work that that Knight does in general. Like, how, how big of a share of of Knight's uh, spending or attention goes towards journalism or information needs broadly? Yeah, so uh, I, I think broadly information needs it, it, that goes across the foundation, but specifically journalism um, and media innovation work. Um, um, uh, on, a, on any given year, there's, we have about 100 to $110 million that are available for us to um, give us funds or, or use us for funding. Um, we usually approximately have 30 to $40 million of that, depending on what the initiatives are. Um, the other things that we have, we have a community-based program. So it's important to remember that Knight, the, the Knight brothers, before it became Knight Ritter, um, they were um, they were obviously had a lot of uh, interest in giving back to the communities that they had Knight newspapers in that they'd had for significant periods of time. So um, there's 26 Knight communities that we still have a president presence in, eight that we have a very heavy presence in, in the sense of having a person uh, fully on the ground there. Um, so we have that component to our work, uh, which is very community focused. And then we have a national program 
and uh, that leads a lot of the kind of community engagement issues, but from a national standpoint. So for an example, in that portfolio, we have funding for Code for America, which impacts local communities, but is also a national organization. And then finally, we have an arts program. Um, and our arts program is also uh, dedicated to the uh, communities that Knight um, focuses on, mm-hmm. geographic communities. Okay. And you mentioned the shift to focusing a little bit more on media innovation. If if I were to look at what Knight was spending money on, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago in the journalism area. I mean, in my mind, I think of Knight spending a lot of money on endowing chairs at journalism schools and supporting, supporting that effort. But, you know, what, uh, but when journalism was seemed to be at least on a sounder financial basis and the, the need for innovation was not quite so clear, how was Knight spending his money in that area? Well, you're right. Your, your brain is right on that. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of work. We still have endowed chairs, but we did a lot of chair endowments. Um, it was a lot of best practices. Um, at the time, there was a lot of awards, um, a lot of insti- large institutional giving um, uh, to those uh, to journalism education areas. Uh, so not only you know chairs, but also programs. Um, and the, at the time, it was to uh, you know keep journal I mean, a very robust spend on journalism education, um, maintaining uh, high standards of journalism by you know uh, rewarding through prizes and practices. And uh, doing some training at that point too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're we're talking now in part because it's the beginning of a new cycle for the Night News Challenge, and which I guess is now is this the seventh calendar year, something like that, for the News Challenge? It was five five year initial initial yes. funding, and then two last, under this new six, model. Yeah, last year was six, and this would be seven. So, uh, the News Challenge, I, I mean, from my perspective, has been a, a pretty brilliant way for Knight to to brand itself as as something very different than funding endowed chairs at journalism schools. You know, in terms of funding innovation and and, and the the competition model of 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 seeking you know appropriate people to to give grants to. Um, Again, this was before you got there, but the the news challenge has changed an awful lot since since seven years ago. If you, it's kind of amusing to go back and look at who won in year one, and then year two, and then year three to see the the trends coming and going. Uh, what would, from what you know from from before you you arrived there formally, what was the the impetus behind starting the news challenge, and and what did Knight want to do with it? Yeah, so the the goal was, I mean, there's a couple of things when Alberto Ibarguen became the president. Um, what we what he saw was a, a an industry that fully failing fully realizing and failing to embrace the disruption and recognize the disruption disruption that was coming um, in the digital era. So there's a lot of effort then to start training programs and um, you know uh, creating initiatives around recognizing that disruption. Um, but at the same time, we're in the era before we had kind of been arbiters uh, around, you know, best practices and things like that. In the digital era, no one knew what best practices were, right? Everything kind of got turned on their head. We weren't really sure what direction would work. And so the initial notion of the contest was starting to communicate with people who had ideas and visions and envisioning uh, what could happen from there, um, what, you know, what was possible, and also starting to get into communities that wouldn't have been traditionally a network that not had access to. Um, and also, you know, to invite, you know, ideas from every, from everywhere around uh, this, this moment that was highly disruptive. Yeah. It does seem that, that a broader audience, I, I know from covering some of the earlier cycles, uh, the, the appeal every year is, is we want to make sure we have more people applying from China. We want to have more people applying from the technology world that may not feel themselves overlapping with journalism in some sort of way. Yeah, that's right. Do as the as the things that the news challenge has funded ha, have have evolved. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the the kinds of of ideas and projects and areas that Knight was perhaps in the past a bit more interested in funding through the news challenge? I, I think in particular of uh, citizen journalism projects, which in the the first couple cycles there were a number of grants that went that way, and it seems like. The idea of funding a site to cover, uh, to you know, use use uh, citizen journalism inputs to cover a subject in a community—that seems to be something that Knight's gotten a little bit away from. Is there anything else that that is is something that Knight used to pay more attention to five, six um, years ago? That they don't as much more. I, well, I think it's morphed. So, I mean, if you look at even the last round of um, mobile, you'll see actually, you know, a lot of. I think that crowdsourcing has become 
kind of background radiation to things as opposed to when at the beginning of that people were like exp- explicitly saying we have to find a way to get people involved in these things, mm-hmm. right? So I think what you see is the technology has shifted enough that it kind of is baked into many of the things that we fund now. Um, so I, I think at the beginning we had to do a lot to be specific about driving that concept through. And, and one of the ways that the contest has worked is – by highlighting things that we saw that were important Um, in this last year, you know, we focused on uh, data network networks and mobile. Now those are categories of course, that you can drive a truck through. Those aren't, you know, very hyper-specific things, but we're also saying, Hey, everyone pay attention to this, right? Data is a huge trend. You you know, we know that um, we can see it in that um, the uh, emergent or existing uh, organizations that do data well, have tons of unique visitors. It's a very powerful uh, um, journalism tool um, that, you know, we had a lot of people that would come in and say, uh, let's build, uh, you know, give me money to build a network for journalists that does X. And our response to that was, you don't really need to build new networks. That's what we have Facebook and Twitter for. And those are very hard to do. What you need to do is how to leverage those networks. How do you think about them anew? How do you use crowdsourcing to get pieces of data out um, through a network. Um, and you see the same thing with mobile as well. So I think, um, you know, those notions were, uh, the, the contest that evolves to kind of focus on what we think topics that are emergent and that need a little gardening, I think. Um, and so we try to be a, a little bit on top of that from a thematic level. Would it be fair to say that part of that is also a shift uh, away from, a project whose end product is going to be a story or a series of stories or a news outlet or a series of news outlets and more towards tools and platforms that you hope are going to have a life beyond the the, the funding period of a grant. Yeah, that's true. I mean, what I think we all recognize, you know, I, I believe if you extrapolate from Steve Waldman's report for the SEC, we're probably around about a $4 billion um, elimination of newsroom payroll over the last five years or now six years. Um, and so, you know, we focused less on content, uh, things around content creation and a lot more around notions of how to involve the audience in self-reporting, how to, um, uh, create efficiencies for journalists and for those, and lower the barrier of entry for people who think like a journalist or want to behave in an informed, engaged community, um, that they have tools that they can use, um, that, uh, you know, those things are all along the way of, of trying to find uh, ways to bridge um, what we see as a loss in the in overall journalism field of bodies and shoe leather and all those types of things. Um, but what's important, uh, I want to make sure to emphasize, is that we've also, you won't see as much of the news challenge because it does, because of it does tend to be kind of technological based, but we're also really interested in funding innovative approaches. Um, so if you look at something like Texas Tribune, which we funded, not in a new challenge concept, but that that's something we're funding that it's not necessarily any of it's not a piece of technology at the beginning. Um, it was uh, an approach to journalism that had a robust mix of technology, business development and content um, in new ways. So um, it doesn't always have to be a, 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 a gadget thing um, or an app. It can be an approach. It's really the, the contest is meant to drive innovation in the field as a whole. Right. And it's, that's worth remembering, as you pointed out, you know, we're talking about roughly $5 million a year for the news challenge. The overall journalism or information funding of night is, you know, six times that seven times that. So right. it's still a relatively small share, even if it is the most interesting from a reality show watching perspective. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is that. Um, one of the things that stood out in the first few iterations of the, the news challenge was the requirement that the projects be local in some way or have a local element to them. And particularly since Knight has, as you mentioned, this other side, which is community-based and is, you know, money comes from having newspapers in a series of communities that uh, that that are tied to a geography. When the, the reboot happened uh, a year ago, a year or so ago, um, local was was I, I think de-emphasized as a as a requirement or as a as a point of emphasis how, how are you thinking about the role of local and when you look at news challenge applications now well we, we always try to base it i mean i think the key for us is you we really want to focus on a community um and we see successes when people build um 
build technologies that have a community, a specific community in mind, and that um, that really get insights on the needs that that community has. So I think it's uh, there's been a shift of saying like local, which we probably would have defined back in the day, even though I wasn't involved with it, as a geographic locale. And now it's really community of interest, which often can be geographic, um, but also is uh, specifically around, you know, a successful looking at how do you, you think about this. So I would, you know, recovers.org, which was a news challenge winner last year, um, uh, is, is one that like, you know, came from uh, two people who were um, wrestling with what happened post a post weather natural disaster. Um, in a community, and they think they think about how to build from a community standpoint. And we, I think that's really important. I mean, my my opinion on this is that you really in 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 the web uh, with what's going on, on the internet, you really have to think about how do you pull together, how do you respond to and build specific communities of interest for your content and your um, and your uh, journalism. Uh, in a way that's different instead of thinking broadly about audience. Um, it, the web rewards you much better about having a robust interaction with a, a community more than it does. How do I find a mass audience on this? I think so. Um, so I think to, to in our thinking that uh, defining everything from a community standpoint is still very important. It's just not necessarily linked to a specific geography at all, all the time. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at some of the, just anecdotally, some of the projects that were funded in the, the first few years, uh, I, I know a number of them seem to be pretty good ideas that seem to uh, suddenly develop hangups when they did try to be implemented in a specific community. And, you know, the, on one hand, that's a valuable lesson to learn when you have that sort of implementation within a geography. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, it, it sort of pushes you away from building things that are more platform based, which is the direction it seems like things are, are, are tool based, think the direction you you're, seem to be going. That's right. That's right. I think that's true. I'm, I'm curious, just from a, from a perception um, point of view, I, I know I, as someone who people occasionally email when they have some some need to, to talk about any journalism project, um, there was there was a there were a lot of people who would say I really think it's terrible that the newspaper in my community closed or that you know something something happened we lost these resources I want to start up a local news website and I want to ask the night news challenge to fund it. And every time I'd have to sort of say that's really not what they're looking for. But nonetheless, I think there is still a broad perception that Knight is still the go-to funder on everything <laughs> related to, to journalism. Yeah. Um, just how, how do you manage that as a foundation so that you can get the kinds of projects brought to you, uh, either through the News Challenger or otherwise, that are lined up with your interests when you are the biggest of big dogs in this space and everyone looks to you for everything? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I, I, it's one of the reasons we talked about, I talk about the, the hole that is generated by, you know, the, the for-profit uh, journalism model, which had obviously incredibly important side benefits um, for communities and democracy um, that, um, you know, that when, as that business model um, fades and, and they, uh, you know, shift the bodies out of the newsroom and all over the places, how do we how do we contend with that? And so, um, to your point, yeah. When people, what we've learned when, when people say that they see those market gaps, um, the issue that we have often is if you look at many of the startups that come from there uh, with you know very noble goals of of providing um, providing for those gaps in a local media ecosystem space. Um, that they tend to lead and think about it from a content standpoint only. And we know there needs to be a really robust mix of things going on. You need, you know, smart technology. You need to think about social media. Branding marketing plays a difference. It plays a huge role. What's your business development strategy? What's your sustainability approach? Um, and that um, that's not necessarily always considered. So, um, you know, on the, on the spectrum of things, we're trying to be really communicative around um, that we want people to, if it's an innovative approach and there's something that's original and unique that the field can learn from, we're trying to make very good strategic bets in that way. Um, because even though it's, it's a lot of money and seeming a lot of money, it's really dwarfed in the, you know, from the, from the for-profit industry and in, in the media space and what that means, or even in the public media space. Um, 
so while it seems, you know, it's one of the things that I learned when I first got here, it seems like a lot, but then when you really get into it, it's like, wow, this is, there's a lot to, there's, there's a lot to fill with not a lot of money, relatively speaking to the size of the gaps. So, um, so we're really trying to be careful around each of those, uh, feeling something strategically that makes sense that all, always within mind that we can generate insights from that, both for the field and also to, um, make better our grant, you know, make each grant that we do better. Um, and, and to that end, I think the other aspect of it is when we're, when we're looking at those things, it's one of the reasons we set up the prototype fund um, where people who don't have a lot of experience on say digital project management come in and say, I want to build a website and I need $800,000 um, or I have this idea. I need a half a million dollars. And the prototype fund does two things for us. One, we say, hey, this idea is interesting. Why don't you demonstrate that there's a proof of concept here, that you get user feedback, that um, that there's something that people want to build on with this, that there's a community that wants to use something like this. And do it small because when you do it in a, for less than $50,000, which is our threshold, what it does is you know you don't have to worry about the, the, the failure rate is probably still high, but the, the risk involved from a financial standpoint for us is smaller. And that kind of lowers a lot of the angst and, and, and makes the grant become more iterative, um, in a way that we think is really important in this space. So that's the other thing we're trying to do is, is, is get people moving in a, in a very much of a, a design thinking iterative process, um, with their idea. So, um, so that there's testing and you're not, you might have this great idea, but, uh, getting a large pile of money burning through that, um, and not arriving at a, a thing that gets adopted. We're, we're trying to find ways to, lessen those types of, uh, grant making. Yeah. I just, just from a, a math perspective, like how many of the grants that you give every, every year are, yeah. I don't know, a million dollars or more. Like uh, my impression is not just the prototype fund and not just the news challenge, but my impression is that overall you're, you're, you're giving, you're making more smaller bets than you used to, as opposed to the, the as opposed to a few larger bets. That's right. I mean, the, the way we look at it from a portfolio standpoint is we have new challenge grants. Uh, we have grants that are the prototype fund. We're trying to then if there's projects that have promise out of that, we have a fund for scaling those projects that are around, you know, 200 to $300,000 levels. Um, we, we still have very um, big commitments to important things that we feel like if we don't fund in the journalism space, things that aren't sustainable without foundation money, um, that aren't, you know, that are important for first amendment issues that are important for journalism education issues. Um, we also, we're still doing those. Um, but then to your point, we're usually what we're calling tentpole grants. And those are only probably one to three a year. And those are, you know, two to $6 million. And, and they have to be grants that we feel like fundamentally alter or try to alter the space and are really important for the media industry in general in some way. Um, so we wouldn't be making that kind of bet on a single entity unless they have a demonstrative impact um, on the field overall. Right, right. I, I, also, Gary, have you ever done the math on how big Knight is in this space? And like, again, from a perception point of view, while Carnegie and Ford and, and MacArthur and others dip in and out every, uh, on, on specific projects, uh, and there are, of course, local foundations that you're very interested in getting involved in this, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, you know, how what what percentage of the journalism phil or information needs philanthropiverse <laughs> is that foundation land? Yeah. yeah, um, I don't know that actually. Um, and that makes me think I should know that, but yeah, it's not something we really consider. I mean, I know, I know roughly the found, you know, foundations night has, we're a little different in the sense that every year I can say that, you know, we have 30 to 40 million you know, Ford and um, MacArthur are initiative based. And so that kind of dials up and dials down based on what they're, you know, looking at. I mean, Ford always has an interest in access um, and that that overlaps with us in a couple of ways um, sometimes. And, you know, and and a lot of the foundations spend money on media, but they're very specifically geared towards a media that is focused on their concerns. Um, so, for example, you know, um, uh, Gates Foundation has a has you know a, a fairly large amount of money towards media, but it tends to be in areas like development in Africa, health, education, those types of things. Yeah. Um, so for journalism, in in the sense of journalism for journalism's sake, 
um, there's not as much uh, of that funding that I could that I could point to that's not out of specific initiatives from those other foundations. Speaking of the international angle, I mean, I, there are there have been a number of news challenge uh, grantees who have been from outside the United States, and the last round in particular, the mobile round had a really big emphasis, even though not the grantees might have been in the United States, it's a lot of right. their, their efforts were pointed towards the developing world. How, how do you, I mean, since the, you know, the mission of, of Knight from a money source perspective is based around United States newspapers right. and that, that source, you know, how do you think about their international responsibility or where, where the, your role fits there? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little difficult for us, frankly. I mean, um, the difficulty comes in assessment. So we're always, we always try to be very aware. And again, this notion of generating insights it's it's um, it's hard to balance that to understand if something's really working on the ground and it's there. At the same time, we recognize obviously you know there's uh, some of our most successful grantees are you know for example Ushahidi uh, stem from you know innovations happening from a world level. I think you really saw that to your point on the mobile. Um, I was really struck. I was at something with um, the International Center for Journalists that was held at a, at the Rockefeller. Um, uh, grounds in, in Italy around mobile web, uh, or excuse me, mobile devices around the world. And um, I was struck by how I felt we were, um, as a country, a bit out of step with it, frankly, where I saw a lot of fascinating things going around um, internationally. And I think you saw that reflected in the mobile round in particular. Um, so we were, we welcome ideas from it. It's not something we spend a lot of time outreach. We look for partners on it, frankly. Um, one of the ways that we impact and fund journalism internationally, we do a lot of, you know, we sponsor convenings and conferences um, in that way because those are things that, you know, they're trusted players. We, you know, we, we want to support journalism training wherever it's at. Um, International Center for Journalists is one of the key areas for us from an international standpoint, because they have the expertise in that and we can give them money, um, even though, it, I mean, they focus around the world, but they're, you know, definitely a, a United States organization and sense of leadership and headquarters and that type of thing. Yeah. It is it is a bit of a hard place for us to operate because of the expectations that we have about being able to see the pragmatic application and um, of those things abroad. Um, and the news challenge is actually from a project standpoint by far where we get the most international um, requests. Yeah. And actually the bringing up the, the mobile round that was just announced a couple months ago, uh, the winners, it, it makes me think of, or not even a couple months ago, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, <coughs> when I, when I was writing up my, my summary of it for, for Neiman lab, I, I noted that uh, it seemed it seemed like this set round of winners was farther in in their projects from what would traditionally have been defined as journalism than than had been the case in previous rounds. And as Knight's overall approach, you know, I think twenty years ago, I imagine Knight would have been fine thinking we're fun, interested in funding efforts around journalism. Over time, that broadened to journalism and the information needs of communities. But with the Knight News Challenge, you still have this news branding. Uh, do you, do you think that's that's here to stay? I mean, will it be the night news challenge for forever yeah. and ever? It's you know, it's something that we really wrestle with. We I feel like the brand is strong in the space and people recognize it. Um and that's important for us to, you know, solicit the most original ideas. At the same time, you're on to something that um we talked about a lot, which is that we've heard from people that without specific outreach to them, they would not thought themselves being considered for it because of the word news in it. Um, so it's a real, it's a difficult thing for us where we're trying to, um, encourage people from this information side to be participants, but at the same time, um, make sure that, um, you know, that it, it you know, at the core the, that, that brand is out there, people get it. Um, we can say K and C and people know what that is. Um, so that's something that, you know, we spent obviously years developing it and not to be tossed aside lightly. However, we don't want that to be a barrier of entry um, from it where we, we see news in a much broader way around, you know, the notion of informing and engaging communities. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a, of a tight, um, of a, you know, of a, of a thing that we've been discussing a lot. This news challenge, I should talk a little bit about um, in, in that way, in the sense that, um, we've launched a new platform uh, that we uh, uh, worked with IDEO on, which is Open IDEO's platform, which is 
um, IDEO, the design firm from San Francisco and around the world, um, they do, um, they have this platform around creating ideas and moving everything through in a very transparent process and a community driven process. We've adopted that for the, for the news challenge. And the sense is that our goal is this is the platform we have the challenge on. Um, but eventually what we want to do with this is create a community where we can have, we could launch, for example, short sprint type of challenges where um, that's very need based. So someone, you know, in a, a local news site says, man, it would be great if we had this app that did X and, or we had this need to do X and we say, Hey, let's put that out and we'll award $50,000 to the three best ideas um, that come out of that. So what we want to graduate to is this platform that is that we have a community on that's always seeking inspiration from need, uh, real need that then we can um, get a community around that builds things out of those needs and fund those uh, finished products. It does seem that uh, most news challenge applicants that uh, that I've talked with, uh, they had an they had an idea that preexisted their knowing about you know the the opening of a news challenge entry period, right? They were taking an idea they already developed and bringing it to it. Whereas it looks like this is more about using the period to try and drive people's ideas. That's right, and I, you know the the the, the uh... I think one of the things that we see, uh, one of the disappointments I have, and I think in general, is, you know, we've done a lot of these experiments. It's important to do experiments. But now we're gotten to the place where we really want to explore why aren't these adopted more, right? Why are mm. some of the things that have happened? Why haven't they been mainstreamed? Why aren't they in full use? I mean, a, a great exception that proves the rule is Document Cloud. You know, Document Cloud is over 400 and 400 locations now, Um and uh, robustly used, continues to grow, um, a really good success story around implementation, you know, having an idea, executing it. When you break down the document cloud aspect of it, you know, it was made by you know, Aaron Pilhofer and, and Scott Lewis were the principals on it and coming Scott out. Scott Klein. Oh, excuse me. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Scott Lewis, the voice of San Diego. Um, uh, it's like, Scott, does he code? I didn't know that Scott Lewis code. <laughs> thanks for the catch. That's Scott. I don't want to do Scott Klein. It's just either. Uh, they... Uh, um, they really, um, um, you know, they, they came from a, a newsroom environment and they were really aware and sensitive to the needs of journalists and building it. And I think if we have more of that in the beginning that we're building towards real need as opposed to a really good idea, but might not, might be a solution looking for a problem, um, we'll have a, a general, a, a better adoption rate than we've seen, um, with a lot of the experiments we've done. Yeah. And that actually raises something I wanted to ask you about also since every block, uh, which was just in the news for, for being shut down by, by NBC, um, is sort of an example for, from, from my perspective of a, a news challenge grantee in the first or second round, I forget which, uh, a lot of money over a million dollars. And while every block sort of ended up having its own life as an institution, it seemed that um, there was a lot of effort put into making sure that it could expand and be used in more places, the additional grant going for open block and then another news challenge grant for open block rural. Um, I I guess I'm curious, just since every block, you know, has has been in the news and, and we're, we've been talking around, around here about what a life for, every block, the software and the idea mm-hmm. could be beyond the life of every block, the subsidiary of, of NBC news. Right. Uh, you know, are, is there anything that you can take from Knight's efforts in that to try and figure out how you can take a, an idea and make sure that it extends beyond the grant period? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, for us, obviously open source and open coding are, are very important things. Um, again, to use, to use um, document cloud as an example um, the other difference with there is they built a really robust developer community um, in that and um, that gained traction and did a lot uh, with different languages that made it very robust. Um, and I think it, a lot of it's time. I mean, this uh, when every block came and, and then open block, um, I, I think there was a lot of emphasis on just the code itself. And not necessarily an, an environment or a community that is engineering and further developing those things. Um, so I think we're a little bit smarter around that. I, I, I think in the past um, we said something. We said, you know, well, it's going to be open source, and that felt like magic words. That means that we'll keep going. Um, when you know you really have to nurture a community around it. 
Um, so I think those, those things are, um, you know, key lessons. Uh, and, you know, we've tried to do, uh, we've been, we've, we've struggled in doing two use cases with it, frankly, on, on, um, those. And I still think it's a great idea. Um, I don't know if it's a, obviously from NBC standpoint, I think they looked at it and they, they didn't have a sustainability model around it. I don't know if there is one and they couldn't find it or if there is something else there that, you know, could be done with it in a, uh, in a, in a nonprofit environment. Yeah. It also seems like document cloud succeeded in, in spreading in large part because it was specifically attuned to solving a problem that journalists have. Yeah. You know, um, some others might be, it might be, it was very clear who the target was for document cloud, right? It's news organizations or the journalists who work at news organizations who have documents that they want to share with their readers in some sort of way. Um, for, for some other projects like every block is, it's like, it's not as directly tied to a traditional newsroom organization. It kind of exists as its own thing. And it, it seems like the target's a little fuzzier. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and also, you know, the every block, I, I think um, the applications of it within a con within an organization that produces a lot of content make a lot of sense. I don't know if it makes a lot of sense as a standalone destination brand either. Um you know, those are all things that you could consider around it. And but to your point, um, we generally see like we're and you know we're you know obviously pushing open government data and data in general. Um, and there is still this kind of space between generating data and generating data that people want to use, or generating data and and with formats and design that people are excited about using. And so I still think that's part of the you know part of the ratio. I mean, not really the part of the formula that we haven't quite cracked, which is, um, how do you, how, how, when you're doing data and makes it available, what are the ways that you can get a community really engaged with those type of data applications? Right. Right. Well, let's talk about open government and open, open data, since that's the theme of, of the current round. Um, one of the issues with, with, with projects that are trying to deal with government data is that they often are by default kind of localized because yeah. Chicago produces data in a different way than New York does and New York produces a different way than Miami does. And there are plenty of places that produce no data in any usable form at all. Um, it seems like one of the possibilities there, and I know Jay Hamilton has, has written about this and talked about this, is pushing the efforts uh, you know, at the sort of government level, like lobbying and things like that. Does, does Knight get involved with – advocating or, you know, actual, actual lobbying or things that are a lot like lobbying to try and get government data freed in some sort of way? Yeah. I mean, we, our policy, our policy, our policy work has been, um, fairly light. I think, I mean, we did, we do a lot around access. So that's been something that's been really important to mm -hmm. us. Um, and we've, we've, we've gotten into policy around that. Uh, we get into policy a little bit more around libraries as well as we see that as a very vital part of a local community in terms of an information space. Um, but you're, you're raising a really good point around what we see with open government and how, you know, we've done this different parts of Knight's work have focused on this in, in, in various ways. I mentioned code for America, um, as in one example of that, but you have, this is a very, it's a, actually a really complex set of issues because especially with open government, you know, you have things from the government side, we we've done, you know, we're, we've been holding these convenings around these spaces and you'll hear someone you know, when a, like a, you know, a CTO, a chief technical officer from, from a city say, we'd love to use all this stuff, but if you charge us more than $2,000, you have to go through the procurement process. And none of you people seem to want to go through the procurement process. <laughs> um, so just an example of like the space where even when you have people in the administrations that are excited about doing it, um, it's very difficult for them to, um, you know, to figure out ways forward. So you have this side where you even if you have an administrator that's excited about getting transparent around these data issues, um, the data might not be clean. They don't know what formats to use. The format to your point might be different in Chicago than it is in LA. Um, all of those things are complicated. So standard practice, standardization of data, best practices are two of the things that I think are going to be really important to tackle. Hopefully some of that will come through the contest. Um, and then you have people, once that data is out, so first you have to find a way to get the data, make it usable. And then when it's out, what are the applications that people are most excited about using it for? What's the actual data that they 
that people are um, interested in, right? Just because we can put data out there doesn't mean, you know, it, that it could, you know, a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it moment. Um, so these are all important things to, to, um, to think about. And I, and I think the other thing that we see is that a shift in, you know, there always and will probably unfortunately be a need for a Freedom of Information Act. And I say unfortunately because it would be great if, you know, we just got the information. But I don't see that going away anytime soon. At the same time, um, there's a shift in saying, how do we enable governments to help themselves with this to get data out? Because, you know, they don't have the resources to do it. I remember a conversation that I had um, uh, with, with Rachel um, in New York, who runs a lot of their data work. And, you know, she was telling me how, um, how, um, there's data that they love to get out, but it's on magnetic tape and <laughs> I need to transfer that. And that's not in the city budget, you know, things like that. So there's a, it's a very complex set of issues, but our, what we feel like with it is, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of developing space that has a lot of emerging vibrancy into it. And that spending time and focus and money funding things in it can really accelerate the process. Yeah. And it also seems like open government data is also uh, oddly a really high risk area because in a lot of areas, um, the opening up of the ability to publish and to, and to reach an audience to non-news organizations and non-journalists in the traditional sense, I mean, I, I view that as a, as, a, as a very good thing. But when you look at a lot of data projects, you if you start releasing mugshots in a really nice machine readable way, you end up with mugshot sites that are, you know, terrible and nasty and basically, you know, organized ways for people to extort, uh, you know, people who've been arrested. Or you end up with something like a really dirty data set of gun owners in suburban New York that ends up being pilloried by the public and ends up being an, an opportunity for people to call for the closing off of that data. It seems like when you have this data that's available to everyone, you know, 10 years ago, there were, you, you know, there were news organizations that were getting, you know, gun owner uh, licensed data and things like that, but they were mostly using them in a sort of constrained set of ways. The fact that it's open a lot more broadly means that there's a greater risk of something being put out there that leads to a counterbalancing revulsion that leads to shutting off data that the public should know about. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's, you've got to be really constructive around it. And uh, I think contextualization is really key on those things. Um, and, um, you know, the, uh, I, to your point, you know, the, that's what makes this difficult is there's data that the government has that's private data that they have to be careful with about how they use it. I mean, think of healthcare data. I mean, that's a very easy one to talk about. If that, you know, releasing healthcare data at an individual level is incredibly dangerous and illegal, right? So um, there's all kinds of um, aspects of it that uh, are, it's a, it, it, it is a new, it's why they, I think that best practices are one of the things that we feel in um, the initial periods of this that we really need to talk about because, you know, what does it look like to be good, you know, quote unquote, good at being uh, transparent and having open data releases? What does that feel like? What are the kind of data that it is? How are those standardized? Um, what should you lead with? What should you be focused on as a government that, that to do those things? So um, those are, I think, all important questions around this space. And, and to your point, if you do those wrong, it has, a, a, you know, the, the, a reverse impact on it where people are like, yeah, we don't want to see that data, please. Right, right. So you guys just concluded yesterday uh, the media learning seminar for folks from foundations, community foundations around the country. Uh, I, I, I will admit I did not watch the live stream of the entire thing, um, but uh, <laughs> there was, there's a lot of content there. There yeah. was. So I did not see if, if uh, there was uh, the, the connection since open government data is often a very local issue. It's an individual, you know, mayor's office that, that may our county government that makes those decisions. How, how much of an appeal was there to, to those community foundations to say, you should be engaged in freeing up the data from your government and your community? Yeah, and it's a great question. I mean, so part of this is this is an effort that is uh, now in its, um, I believe it was their sixth year um, of it, maybe seven, but I think six, um, that uh, has been obviously going on um, before me. But this was an effort that says to recognize that in these spaces, as a lot of the traditional news um, outlets reduce coverage, what is the role of the community foundation 
um, in this space. Um, and uh, we've done a couple of things with that. Um, and, and the government, the open government, um, uh, is a, a vital part of it. One of the things that we funded is something called the Community Information Toolkit. And what that is is for community foundations. And I should say community foundations are place-based foundations that you may or may not run into. They're, you know, like lots of cities or, or general areas have them and they're, they're, they're created, you know, there's a large amount of funding them actually. And they're created to, you know, better the place where they live, where people live in that community. And, um, and so we see them as a really having potentially, and they have been had a really important role around these local information ecosystems. So we had something, uh, for example, called the community information toolkit. And that was a way of, uh, getting different um, organizations in the same room and trying to find going on an information scavenger hunt. Um, you know, how do I get a marriage license? Uh, what do I do to uh, file my property taxes? How can I find out who the comptroller is for my town? Um, you know, things like that. And what happens is they get into that and they realize, you know, and some of these people work for the local government, some are on the chamber of commerce, just different people from different um, from organizations or groups. And the initial part of that is a reflection of realizing how difficult it is to get data like this um, out. And um, so the notion of open government, uh, we hope this is, you know, we, we made a big plug for this first phase of the, of the news challenge because um, the open government part and the way the news challenge is arranged right now, we have this inspiration phase where people can come on and post um, problems that they're having. So, um, I think what we feel like is it's difficult for those community foundations to necessarily come up with a technological solution to these things, but they're incredibly powerful at convening and um, being analytical about where they see the missing information gaps are. And then hopefully with some community, you know, if we get this kind of robust open government data going, it allows them and, and us uh, to see what the needs are to build technologies and applications, services, approaches um, all those things to make it um, to make to lower the barriers of engaging with the government and increasing the way that government and citizens can interact. How important when, when you're looking at these community foundations and these sorts of projects, how important do you view it to involve the local newspaper or the local television station? Such as, it would seem like, you know, the question before about how do you get data to the appropriate audience? And if you have a community of interest and you're dealing with a, some, you know, a website that deals with a specific subject area and isn't tied to geography, you, I think you might have a better chance of reaching that community than if you're, you know, in Dallas in a place where the Dallas Morning News has a big reach or, right. you know, the, the television station. Is, is it important for these foundations or, or from your perspective to, to integrate into what local news ecosystem remains? Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. I think, and I think, you know, one of the things that we see for um, um, those news organizations and what I, I would argue is there's a huge role for them to play around this notion of curating and contextualizing and verifying and, and amplifying a lot of these, you know, social media pieces, um, as well as, you know, these um, community foundations often are focused on marginalized members of the community that maybe aren't part of a, of a, you know, the large media presence in town um, and that they have an ability to reach out and generate content for and about those communities um, that might be missed or not covered or traditionally have been there and aren't covered now. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, we encourage complete interaction uh, with those. And, and I think, you know, we, we believe that there's, you know, that there's a really vital role for them to play in that, in that, um, from the legacy media standpoint or the large media properties and communities and for the local community foundation to find those gaps and also elevate stories that matter for the community. Yeah. When one thing that I did see on the live stream of the conference was, uh, Alberto, uh, talking a bit about arrogance and risk-taking and uh, he had a line that uh, every one of us in this room has a, a problem with confirmation bias. We liked, we see things, we fund them, we like to see them as successes because yeah. everyone likes to see everything they do as a success. And it, it has struck me as it, as an observer of the news challenge and seeing the the ways in you know a relatively short period of time that a lot of. I've seen significant changes in what Knight is interested in in funding. It seems that Knight has been 
willing to self-evaluate and to change course. I guess I, I'm curious. I, I don't know exactly how long you've been there. What, two years now? Two You're, years. Two yeah, years. Two much. Yeah. In, in two years, you know, what – What's what? Which of your perceptions have changed about the role that something like like uh, Knight can play in in helping journalism and, and the information needs of communities? What what were the notions that you brought to it that you know if you put on your self criticism hat you you now might disagree with or think yeah. less? Of? <laughs> yeah, um, I think one I was really struck by. Well, one thing that really struck me um, is uh, uh, often a lack of authenticity in the communication. Um, but for on both sides, which is that um, a little bit of the sense that, you know, um, if you receive funding and um, you you don't necessarily want, the, you know, traditionally or, or maybe even the way that the grant is constructed, if, if something veers off course or you found another way, there's pressure on you not to. Uh, necessarily shift in that way or report on those things or that you don't want to be necessarily completely transparent, but things go wrong because you're afraid of funding getting pulled. And I didn't realize, and also from the other side of it, people who might, um, you know, where there might be rigidity in, in the sense of this is what we said the grant is doing, they're not doing it. And so it's this kind of two-way street around communication that I was surprised at, where um, there's a real sense that, um, you know, it's okay to shift. It's, I think, you know, when from my background in innovation, one of the things that you learn is something that's a new concept to stabilization means about four iterations. And often the way that we construct things are saying, like, you're going from idea, you move right from idea to finished product. Um, and there's so many steps in between those things um, that it's important to have a dialogue uh, that's there. Um, the other thing I came in all, you know, Bay Area oriented around. <laughs> you know, agile development and, you know, these things around uh, portfolio-based approaches and, um, and you know, design thinking. Um, and one of the things that we found was we, you know, on this, we're, we're trying to add value beyond just funding. Um, so we, we kind of think of it more as a financing model and, and the difference for that, meaning that if you need help in specific areas, um, you know, we'll, we'll provide that. So, we had this first round of news challenge. I'm like, okay, let's get them help. So let's get them, you know, we'll get them, uh, we'll do some agile development stuff. We'll do, uh, you know, a little bit of design thinking. And, and then, you know, we had these people together and we, and they had real back office issues. Like I've never hired someone before. How do, <laughs> um, how do I find a good technologist? What does payroll software look like? Um, you know, what's my tax status? How do, am I a nonprofit or a for-profit? Can I be both? Um, you know, uh, real questions around marketing and branding that they didn't have expertise on. So we really had to step us. I took a step back and realized that I broke into one of my own fundamental rules, which is to say, let's talk to the audience or the community before we try to dictate what goes on. Um, and so we shifted that in the sense of we're trying to, um, in a very organic way, uh, give access. We, we found kind of a group of people we call, you know, the super friends, uh, that are people within our network that, you know, if you're having trouble with one of these things or you want help in one of those areas that will, um, pay for that person to talk to you. And if you want a deeper relationship, then you can explore that in terms of, uh, you know, partnering and, or seeking services. Um, so that's a shift as well. So those two things, you know, I, I had an idea of what was missing in the space and, and, and I was certainly wrong about that. And then I was surprised at how it took a while for people to, uh, really have a frank and honest conversation and uh, our funding with them. And, and, you know, our goal is for them to be successful. Ultimately, obviously, that's why you were receiving funding. So, you know, moving that into a very proactive conversation about how we can give you additional benefits and help, I think, has been a, a shift. Right. So like hiring Ben Wurz to do financial support, right? Is that that, that was part of that that shift? I mean, he was, he does that for the foundation as a whole, but that's a good example. Or we, you know, we have um, have people who uh, we've hired for branding. Who's uh, someone that we use that is brand listener. Um, who uh, his name's Peter Spear, and he's worked with you know Fortune 500 companies, and um, you know he's really good at like having you talk about what you're trying to do and say, okay, here's what I see your brand attributes being, and those are very valuable conversations. And if we can do those early. 
that's important. Um, and so having a whole kaleidoscope and having people who, you know, have deep HR experience to help you say, wow, you know, the, the best thing that could happen is we started with four people. We're now 15. We're about to be 30. What do we do? How do we do that? How do we scale in the right way? And there's a lot of human resource questions around that. So um, it's great when we when that's happening. So we want to make sure there's expertise there. Right, right. So just to, to start to wrap up, the uh, you've you've got the OpenGov contest that's going on now. That I, if I presume you'll probably announce the winners in June at the Civic Media Conference. That's the usual calendar, at least. Yeah, yeah. So we are we we will be announcing those in in June. And then you've committed to one more round on a topic to be determined. I think right for the for the fall. It's is a. I mean, if you want to tell me what the topic is, if you've decided, it, great. But uh, is what's the what do you think about the news challenge going forward? Is this uh, do you expect this will something whether name news challenge or not will continue in you know twenty fourteen? Yes, um, I mean, and one of the reasons we built uh, that we specifically very oriented towards a platform. Um, that we're using is to create a continuous community around that. So I definitely think that we'll still, you know, have um, it's, it's really, we kind of see this year as bridging. So, you know, we went from one contest a year that lasted about 10 months. And then we had three last year that was, you know, roughly 10 to 12 weeks in, in the period that they ran. Um, and we, we had, frankly, I think a little fatigue, um, by the end, both from our side, I mean, it's a lot to run these. And um, we wanted, though, to build a contest that was moving at the speed of what we saw the innovation disruptions in the space were. And um, so, you know, that was, the, that was one of the goals of running three and reducing the time period. And also, you know, if someone had an idea and they got funding in 10 weeks, they're on top of, you know, they can they can move more quickly. Um, and this year we shifted to two, one, because we saw a little fatigue on the third and also um, to really build this community on a new platform. And it will take a while. I don't, I don't, you know, it'll, it'll take a bit for us to get there, but goal, you know, for 20 from this year is to, to run the news challenge, have a community built up on that, become much more transparent in the, in the process of selection. Um, and because it's, it's partially crowdsourced, some of the, the selection is going on because people can comment and things like that. And then really moving into 2014, still having some, big themes that are overarching for the challenge, but also seeing how we can use a platform to attack, you know, in these kind of sprint level um, idea sessions on it. So it becomes a platform that we can use for large, small, um, you know, non-calendar based type of activities as well. And I think that will fully get into the idea of challenge, which is that we put, you know, ideas out there or we're putting uh, needs that people have or problems that have been unearthed or uncovered. Um, and, and hopefully that will then, you know, be the, the challenge in, in the fullest sense of the name. It also seems like part of that is just a direct response from a uh, reaction to just doing this for a longer period of time. You, as you, you've funded a lot of people at this point and yeah. the community around those sorts of issues just is, is going to continue to be there as we were, we were just joking when you were up here a, a week or two ago, just how many people you funded in places like Cambridge or <laughs> San Francisco <laughs> or elsewhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and the thing is about that is that's an important aspect. And we've recognized that, one of our key roles for night, I think, is being the facilitator of those not only online but offline convenings. And we're seeing, we're hoping, you know, the website serves for that for us. But we're also hoping that this becomes um, this becomes a um, platform that people can continue those conversations, have them offline, and that if night disappeared for some reason, which you know, hopefully will not happen, but if it does. <laughs> You can still have this vital network that's kind of self-propelling towards innovation in the space. Don't talk about night disappearing, man. That's not that's not good. <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, no, no real chance of that. But the no, the notion being that uh, uh, you know that these are a space that is uh, that we'd love for it to work around it with us not being the might not being the primary convener, but the facilitator of these kind of conversations. Right. Right. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for talking with me. I appreciate it, man. No problem. Always great to talk with you, Josh. Well, that's episode seven of Press Publish. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Michael for the conversation. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael Manis, although he doesn't tweet enough. You'd probably be better off following his night colleagues, John Bracken or Chris Sofer. They yammer on a lot more on Twitter. 
you have an idea on how to make government more open, you might want to consider entering the Night News Challenge. It's at newschallenge.org. You have until March 18th to submit your application. Although, as always, just because you're a journalist doesn't mean you have to wait until deadline. You can find links to everything we talked about in today's episode in the show notes at neimanlab.org or at presspublish.org. If you have any suggestions of guests we should have on future episodes, please do get in touch. If you like our show, subscribe. You can do it on iTunes, through iTunes U, or through RSS, or you can just check us out every week on SoundCloud. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and much, much more. Find us at neiman.harvard.edu, and that is N-I-E-M-A-N, not like Neiman Marcus. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House. Walter Lippmann, who said, What we call a democratic society might be defined for certain purposes as one in which the majority is always prepared to put down a revolutionary minority. That's from Men of Destiny, 1927. Our theme music again is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish, but until then, always remember, disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you.